On June the 18th, 1974, an F4 tornado ripped a 25-mile path through central Iowa. It destroyed the business district, over 100 homes, and one church in my hometown of Ankeny, Iowa. 50 people were injured that day, and tragically, two people lost their lives. And you kind of wonder, why does something like that happen? You see, in 1974, Ankeny was a small, quiet, safe little town. And why did that happen? To my church, it was my home church that was the one church damaged. We've all wondered about that at one time or another. There was something that happened, and we wondered, why did God let that happen? We, why would a good God allow bad things to happen? Your faith may be affected by that. I mean, in fact, your faith might be dying right now because of that. Because of something that happened, maybe in the world in general or in your life specifically, And you can't reconcile a good God allowing bad things to happen. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about doing something bad? Don't raise your hands. I can't see them anyway. I want you to think about it. Have you ever thought about doing something so bad that you knew that if you got caught, you'd go to prison? And that was probably the reason why you didn't do it. And you thought, if you thought you could have gotten away with it, you might have done it. It's interesting that when people wrestle with this existence of evil in the world as it relates to a good God, we're always thinking about evil out there instead of evil in here. It's never the evil in here. In other words, I've never heard anybody make the case, if God is good, he should have done something about me a long time ago. We've never seen that. We don't hear that. If you chase this idea down to its logical extreme, you'll end up thinking, I don't believe in God because I exist. It's not testable. So the only way you'd ever be convinced that there is a good God is for me to no longer exist. But then I wouldn't be around for God to convince me that he's a good God. The Apostle John would probably have something to say like, I saw something that might help you with this dilemma, this question. I saw God in a bodily form coexist around evil men. And the God that I saw didn't prove that he was God by eliminating all evil. No, he did something else. He loved me. And he went to work to eliminate the evil in me. We're actually starting today part six of our series titled Eyewitness, Testimony of One Who Was There, where we're tracking along with the Apostle John as he travels on this journey with Jesus. John doesn't just tell us what happens in this gospel. He had an agenda. He had a reason for writing this. He wants you to arrive at the same conclusion that he came to about Jesus. And the best way to get there is to tell you what he saw. So John organizes this entire account of the life of Jesus around events that he calls signs. These signs were unusual events that point to something, and that something was actually Jesus himself. These signs were unusual events, 
they keep, keep in mind, they were, many of them, miracles, but they weren't random acts of kindness. They were specific events in order to substantiate what Jesus said about himself. Today we're going to look at sign number six. It's found in John, the 11th chapter. Last week, Jesus was in the vicinity of Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple, and while he's there, the temple leaders ask him this question in John 10, 24. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. They're saying, if you're the Messiah, just tell us. And look what Jesus said in response. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. I've told you, I've told you. I haven't just preached about it, though. I've done more than that. The works I do, the miracles I perform, the things I do in my Father's name, they testify about me. In other words, Jesus didn't just tell us, he showed us. I've given you the evidence But you just don't want to embrace it. Because as we said last week, they, these religious leaders, maybe they're kind of like some of us. They were willfully blind. They refused to look at what could be seen. So Jesus decides to do all, to do do something, and he goes all in. This is so significant. He does something that would leave absolutely no doubt to who he claimed to be, this sign was so indisputable that it actually forced the hands of those who were willfully blind, those who wouldn't accept the fact that Jesus was actually the Messiah, the Son of God. Now here's what happened. In John the 11th chapter, verse one, we read this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany. Now Bethany is about a day and a half's walk from Jerusalem, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And one thing we know about these two ladies is that Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus were great friends with Jesus. Verse three, John continues, he says, so, these, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Imagine just for a moment being so close to Jesus That someone doesn't even have to tell him your name. They just say to Jesus, the one you love. And they they would be confident that Jesus would know exactly that he was referring to you. Verse four says, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness, this sickness that Lazarus has, it will not end in death. But by the time the messenger arrives to give Jesus the message, We know that Lazarus has already died. Jesus continues in verse four, not, no, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus believed that bad things can happen to good people, and they do. But this doesn't disprove the existence of God. In fact, it can actually underscore the existence of God. Jesus finishes the statement this way. He says, so that, because there's a purpose, so that God's son may be glorified through it. In other words, this sickness was found in nature. 
This is natural. It wasn't the result of a bad behavior. Let me ask a question. I just want you to think about. Why do things in nature, why do natural disasters even happen? I know you don't know the answer to that. Wise men have been pondering that question for all of man's existence. And how could we possibly believe in a good God when nature, things like tornadoes or viruses, seem to be our enemy a lot of the time? Well, John continues in verse 5. He says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. And we might wonder, why is he saying that? Why does John write that down? Because it doesn't look like Jesus loves them all that much. It's why Jesus actually manufactured this sign, not just for those who were sitting around the circle there close to him. He did it for you and me. Verse six says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So when Jesus learned that his friend was ill, he stayed there two full days, which was kind of mind-blowing to the people around him because they had seen Jesus heal complete strangers before. And now, why would he have not headed out immediately when he got word that Lazarus was sick? Because Lazarus was one of his closest friends. The answer is, he was up to something. You see, Jesus was setting the stage for another sign. Verse seven, and then he said to his disciples, uh, let us go back to Judea. Now, they head back to Judea, but there's, it's probably kind of confusing to Jesus and his guys, to the guys that are with him anyway, because the last time that they were there, things didn't go really all that well for them. In fact, people picked up rocks to stone Jesus, And the problem with being around people who are being stoned is that the people throwing the rocks aren't always accurate with their throws. So you don't want to be around someone who's being stoned. Verse 8, but Rabbi, they said, these are the disciples, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus, just in case you've forgotten They tried to kill you last time we were there. You still want to go back? You you want us to go with you again? You see, the real issue why the disciples didn't want to go back to Bethany was fear. Maybe, maybe, Lord, we could just sit this one out. We just stay here, right? Or maybe, maybe this is one of those times when you go yourself and we kind of just hang back. There's some tension in the text. And then Jesus does this thing where he seemingly changes the topic. Jesus turns to his guys as they're trying to talk him out of going and he says this in verse nine. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And Jesus' guys, they're like, what are you talking about? 
What does this have to do with anything that we were just discussing? Later on in the narrative, I think this becomes crystal clear. But here, here he's saying to his guys, you need to follow the light of the world while the light is in the world. He said a similar thing last week and we talked about the healing of the blind man in John chapter nine. This is his message. You guys have an, a unique opportunity. You're in f- the physical presence of the light of the world. That's me. And if you're in the physical presence of the light of the world, you should follow the light of the world while the light is in the world because when the light of the world leaves the world, it'll get really dark. Men, you will never see more clearly than you see right now. So if you stay here out of fear, you'll miss the opportunity of a lifetime. You'll miss seeing the light do something that will change the way you understand life and death forever. He would say to all of us, If you refuse to follow the light of the world, you'll stumble around in darkness. You'll stumble around in a world that has no meaning or purpose. You'll stumble around in darkness trying to make sense out of this world that really makes no sense at all. And apart from the author of life, you'll never understand life. And eventually you'll find yourself backed into a corner of despair. It's interesting The famous atheist Richard Dawkins accurately says, where there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. I think he perfectly described what life is like without the light of the world. Well, Jesus told his apostles, and he says to us, follow me, I'm the light who came into the world to bring light to your world. And without it, you will stumble around in darkness trying to figure out things without any success. Verse 11, John writes, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. He told him, I'm going to Bethany to wake up my my best friend, Lazarus, who's with me. And they don't want to go. So they start giving Jesus medical advice. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever been praying and you start coaching God on all things medically oriented? Like you're telling God how the doctors should perform and the way the surgeons should do certain things while all along you have to know that God is sitting there and goes, I've got it guys. I created the human body. Well, the disciples are trying to get out of going. And listen, this is what he says in verse 12. He said, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Jesus had been speaking to them metaphorically, and they didn't understand about Lazarus' death. So he just told them straight out, guys, Lazarus is dead. To which then they thought, wait a minute. Two days ago you told us 
he's sick, but this sickness isn't going to lead to death. And now you tell us he's dead? And then what happens next in the text is horrible for Mary and Martha. But it's absolutely awesome for the disciples and for us. Look at verse, the end of verse 14 and then verse 15 says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there to keep my friend from going through the agony of death and his sisters from having to watch him actually slip into the next world. Who would say something like that? Except Jesus has a real point in this. He said, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake, guys. And for the sake of every parent who had ever had to bury one of their children, or every husband who ever had to bury his wife, he's there for the sake of every child who ever had to bury their parent too early. He's there for all of us. Jesus does this for our sake. And it's here that he, he manufactures a sign. You see, the light of the world had come to shed light on one of the dilemmas that mankind had wrestled with for thousands of years. How do you reconcile the idea of a good God in an evil world coexisting Verse 15 continues, and Jesus said, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then in between these verses, there's this little moment of levity. Because see, the disciples still don't want to go. Look at verse 16. It says, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us, go, let us also go, that we may die with him. Translation, Lazarus is dead. Jesus is going to be dead. And we're all going to be dead together. This is not going to go well. <laughs> it's just not. I think Thomas, known as Didymus, might have been the Eeyore of the bunch you know what I mean. Meanwhile, back in Bethany, they're asking, where's Jesus? Jesus didn't make it in time to heal Lazarus. And guess what? He didn't even make it for his funeral. And now it's kind of embarrassing if he shows up now. Verse 17 says, on his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And when he gets there, we read this in verses 20 and 21. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now think about it. The first thing she says to him right out of the gate, she confronts the Lord. This is brutally honest. And you kind of have to admire this about Martha. Have you ever said something just straightforward to God? Just straight from a broken, grieving heart? Have you ever said something like that in prayer? Well, you need to know, Martha's example is for us. It's okay 
God can handle it. And if you've ever been afraid, if you've ever been afraid, you should know in this moment, you get permission to be honest like that with God. It's okay to be honest with God. In fact, some of you are dealing with fear right now because of this virus and everything that it has caused. It's okay. You can be honest with God. Martha expressed what we all feel in moments like this. She said to Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. This is partially your fault, God. You could have, but you didn't. And isn't it good to know that there's nothing wrong with your faith when things don't go your way? You see, bad stuff happens to good friends of Jesus all the time. In this case, Jesus gave a sign for our benefit. Now, Martha is like us in this way. She's trying to cling to whatever faith she has, and she's real direct. Jesus, you should have been here. I shouldn't be angry at you because, well, you're God, but you could have stopped this from happening, and I can't help but just tell you how I feel. Verse 22, John writes, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Martha says that to Jesus. Even though you're so late getting here, I know that even now God will do what you ask. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And I think Martha is probably thinking, oh, he's switching over to preacher mode. You know, when someone walks up to you and gives you a verse in a time of crisis and you're like, you know what? That's not what I need right now. You're in the midst of your own personal loss or grief. You're you're saying to them, I've lost somebody I love. I don't want a sermon right now. I don't want theology. So she thinks that Jesus is just trying to put some theological spin on this crisis to make her feel better. In verse 24, Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's explaining, I know my theology, Lord. I went to synagogue. I was paying attention. I know he'll rise again. But I'm not concerned about the last day right now. I wanted you to get here so we didn't have to wait for the last day. Don't miss what comes next. Jesus looks at her. He wasn't there to give her a sermon. He wasn't there to correct her theology. He looks at her and he says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? There's no way Martha took all of that in, in that moment. There's no way that most of us can take all of that in. Jesus says, you'll die, but you won't. His point here is this. Death is simply a door. It's a transition. But Jesus also sees her pain in that moment, her confusion, And he sees where theology meets the real world. He sees a real person. They were friends. Remember, she meant something to him. So he asks her, do you believe this? 
And this is so hard for her to believe. Let's be honest, it'd be hard for us to believe in that moment. Martha pulls together all the faith that she can muster. In verse 27, she says, Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Martha was saying, I don't understand all of this. I don't understand everything. But I realize I don't have to understand everything to believe something. And the one thing she's certain of is Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Well, Martha runs home and she tells her sister Mary that Jesus is here. And she goes and she meets him. And they have a similar conversation. And John writes this. When Jesus saw her weeping, that's Mary, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. When Jesus gets there, he arrives at the tomb knowing that he's go- what he's going to do. And yet he pauses, and then it says he weeps. It's a picture of divine empathy. That was his friend. And he knew what he went through. And in that moment, he identified with these two sisters. Because he was kind of like that. If you've ever been in that moment, you need to know that God feels your pain. Peter saw this and would later write, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You can cast your cares, your fears, your disappointments, all of those things on him because you can know with confidence that he cares for you. Peter saw Jesus enter into the pain in that moment, into the fear that those girls had. He saw him enter into the human emotion in that very moment. Verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And there it is again. There it is. Why didn't he do something? Somebody's asking it. He healed the blind guy, could have fixed this thing. Here's the logic. If he could have, he would have. But since he didn't, he probably can't. But as it turns out, he could have. He just didn't. And it's probably because he did it for our benefit. Look at what we read in verse 38 and following. It says, Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And now Jesus is going to do something that's going to freak everybody out. He says, take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, and maybe she pauses right here because she doesn't really know how to explain this because she's talking about her brother, but she goes on and she says, by this time, there's a bad odor for he's been there four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? I want us to push pause in the story just for a moment. And I want us to, I want to say something to all of us on behalf of Jesus. 
He said, if you believe, if you put your trust in him, you will see the glory of God. I want you to think about that. Don't ever forget that. So Mary and Martha give permission to have the stone moved. And this is what we read in verse 41 and 42. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. In his prayer, Jesus says, Father, you and I know what's going on here. And you and I are connected in this. It's so important that his disciples and the future generations, everybody involved, know that God and Jesus are one. They're connected. But the most important question we should ask, not just in the Gospels, not just in the Bible, but the most important question in life for us to wrestle with is, who is Jesus? Because if Jesus is who he claimed to be, and he's connected to God, but he, if he is who he claimed to be, then all those things about this life that we don't understand, they get explained in him. Verse 43 says, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Lazarus came out. He was alive. And then, Jesus, then John wrote something so obvious that it probably didn't really need to be written. It's verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen that Jesus did, did what Jesus did believed in him. You bet they did. They had just seen a man who had been dead for four days, raised back to life. Here's John's formula. Remember this. Those who saw the signs believed. It was evidence that he was who he said he was. The raising of Lazarus was such an indisputable evidence. So many people flooded out of Bethany. And they're testifying wherever they went that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus raising a man from the dead. And this is John's message. I want you to believe. But I don't want you to believe in Jesus because of belief. I'm not asking you to follow Jesus because of faith. I just want you to know what I saw because if you saw what I saw and if you trust me to testify truthfully to you, then perhaps you'll arrive at the same conclusions I did. Not simply about what Jesus did, but about who he was, the son of God. He summarized it at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31. He said this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Seeing leads to believing, which leads to trusting. That's the invitation of the gospel, to put your faith in Jesus based on the evidence. Well, I'm so thankful that you're joined, you joined us this morning, and I'm 
really excited about the series that we've been in as we're tracking towards Easter. It's hard to believe it's just two weeks away. During this season, I want to encourage you to stay connected with us through the website and the Facebook page so you can get timely updates, as well as you can communicate with us how we can best serve you and minister to you and encourage you. I want to say also thanks for your flexibility and your support. It means the world to us right now. And I want to also encourage you, invite someone to watch this tape this morning or Maybe better yet, invite them to join you next week. In the meantime, may God bless you. We'll see you very soon.